Welcome to the best of times. My name is John Doran. In this new series for Lush Limited and The Quietus, I'm going to be talking to people about some of the best and worst times they have been through and hopefully find out how these experiences have made them who they are today. In the first episode, we talked to Jason Williamson of Sleaford Mods. And today, for episode two, we're talking to Horace Panther and Terry Hall of The Specials. This popular punk-influenced Rocksteady and ska band formed in Coventry in 1977 and went on to record one of the most highly rated British debut albums ever, The Specials, in 1979. They rapidly became the epitome and gold standard in socially realist, anti-racist, politically progressive bands. They are back today with a new album called Encore, and it feels like it's not a moment too soon. Horace Panther, Terry Hall, tell me about the best of times. You go first, Horace. Um, The best of times, I think 1979. Um, perhaps the first six months of 1979, we just record, we recorded Gangsters in the January, um, and it finally got released in in May, I think. But um, in that ensuing period, we decided, we became the band that you know and love as the Specials, and um, we started to do little club shows, and a momentum sort of started, and. Um, it was real good. We were all cramped into this little van, but we were all um, on a mission, and um, we were all just in- enthusiastic as anything. And we played some fantastic concerts, and the band just started to gel. And you know, we we knew that we were really good, and that you know something was going to come out of it. Was there any specific incident, or any number of specific incidents, that made you stop and think? Hang on, this is really going somewhere. Um, uh, for me, I think leaving the country because I left the country before that, and it allowed me to visit places like, uh, especially I think New York, and uh, I don't know what year that was, eighty, nineteen eighty, when we were with the Statue of Liberty and yeah. all that stuff, and that sort of really did me in because um, at no point. In my life, did I expect to be in that position, in any way? And um, and we were being hounded by Nina Mishkoff was the name of the son. Was that her name? Yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She she flew over to do an interview with us, and photo sessions, and and it felt really surreal. It it just felt really surreal because it felt like we'd gone from playing pubs in Coventry to now doing press conferences in New York and, um, yeah, just a very surreal period. So when you came, when it came time to record the first album, in your bandmate, Jerry Dammers, you had, let's say, someone who was quite particular about what he thought the band should sound like, and yet you ended up working with a producer who had quite a tyrannical reputation now obviously whatever happened in the studio produced like one of the all-time great debut albums but what was the experience of making the specials like elvis costello was a fan i mean basically he and and i think uh, he he wasn't exactly tyrannical i don't remember him being particularly no. tyrannical in no. the studio it was more just to make sure everybody was in the in the room and um, in the right frame of mind to, 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 to play, really. I mean, the, it was quite a hands-off production regime that he had. He, I remember his seat behind the desk 
but I don't remember him actually doing anything. <laughs> and no, truly, I don't. Was, I remember him sitting behind the desk. Um, One day I came in um, to um, the, the, the studio sort of quite early, and he'd arrived a lot earlier, but I don't think he'd gone home, to be honest, and he was, like, stretched out over the desk, yeah. sort of very, very hungover, and he sort of woke up and, and he sort of pulled his pulled his lips back and said, Horace, I've got this really awful gum disease. Look at this. Yeah. And uh, I went and made him a cup of tea and, you know, we started again. But uh, no, we, he wasn't, you know, there's no way. He, but he was a fan. He was, he was, he was our buddy, really. That's what it felt like. It almost felt like a part of the band, really. And somebody we sort of trusted because he'd made a record and we hadn't, really. And... Um, to work with a musician as a producer sometimes is really good, I think. That's what I've learned as well over the last 40 years. Somebody who understands where your head's at. At very early doors, you kind of, like, moved in the same orbit as The Clash for a short period of time. You know, you had similar management. Um, you know, I know Joe Strummer was a fan. Looking back now, it seems really clear-sighted that you put a lot of distance between yourself and that scene. But did it feel counterintuitive at the time? No, I think we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to The Clash. Um, being able to tour with them in 1978 was, I always cite this as our, our rock and roll boot camp. You know, we started the tour as civilians, but ended it, I think, as a, a, as a, as a group. And I think The Clash showed us how to present a show, um, personally. So, like, I, I, I only know through reading about it. I mean, when I first started going to gigs in Liverpool in the mid-'80s, they were quite violent or whatever. I can only imagine that in the late 70s, things were much worse even, that gigs could be quite violent and quite hectic and unpredictable. There's you that. were on that Notorious tour with The Clash and yeah. Suicide. Yeah. Well, what was that gig like then? But every gig was really uh, just very odd. I, mean, I, 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 I really loved Suicide, but there was so of another planet and it couldn't trying to connect them with a the clash audience was just impossible. But they got hammered every night, didn't they? Yes, Bowled every night, every, every night. single night. Yeah. And they just stood there and accepted it. And uh, I thought they were great. But um, and we got sort of spat out a lot. I remember. And um, yeah, but I, and it, there wasn't that much violence. There was a lot of drinking. It was a massive drink culture, and um, and there was always troubles, like mainly caused through people like Bernie Rhodes who, who organised this or did this and Glasgow was the bouncers went nuts and uh, I think there was a, it was um, the concert that the Clash did before in Glasgow there had been a real big fight between the fans and the bouncers so the bouncers had it in for the Clash this time round and I think that's right, that, right. that's what I heard right. um, and that particular night Joe Strummer and Paul Simonon were arrested at the hotel I um, remember yeah um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that and um, were carted off and spent the night in the cells. So uh, yeah, but I think that was kind of you know uh, Glasgow won, clash nil. You know the, the return match. You know. But I heard also that they somebody hired a stripper to distract the bouncers. Yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's myth. <laughs> no, no, I, I remember that. Yeah, like it was not as a pleasant the clash sight. were trying to get off yeah. and out, the bouncers were distracted by a stripper on stage in the balcony. Is that on the balcony? It was in the balcony. It's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, what about how different was it when you went out on the road as the headliners? Basically, the same audience, only they yeah. were wearing different clothes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what, that was a remark that um, Michael Dempsey, who was a bass player in The Cure, 
um, he said to me, we, uh, we started in, um, in Brighton, if I'm the two-tone tour, and that was the first thing he said to me. He said, all those people um, were at um, um, the Susie and the Banshees show last week, but they're just wearing different clothes, which I thought was quite, was quite funny. The two-tone look, did that come from you or the audience? Both, really. Yeah, a bit of both. I think it was Crawley where we played with The Clash and it was... Wall-to-wall skinheads, full wasn't of it? skinheads, yeah. And they seemed to appreciate some of what we were doing and I think uh, a light went on afterwards because, you know, we, it, as, with our image, it wasn't... We were all over the place, but that was OK. We didn't, weren't really thinking about it. We were closer to sort of enduring the blockheads where lots of different images and then we just um because we sort of had work to do like photos and stuff we just started to go towards that look and it was a look that we're all familiar with because our ages and um with, with the sort of mods and skinheads first time round, so we we knew what the look was and we adopted it really obviously you know, the true story of kind of British skinhead movement is kind of quite an interesting one. It's a lot more complicated than a lot of people give it credit for in 2019. And I'm guessing the majority of skins you had at your gigs were kind of pro-black music and into that sort of culture. Yeah. But there was like a big division, wasn't there, at a certain point between kind of skinheads and boneheads, essentially. Did you ever have trouble from groups like the NF at your gigs? Mm, a couple, of, a couple yeah. of three times... Yeah. yeah, but it was more threats, wasn't it? Yeah, the, you know, yeah. people would sort of phone in, or, or you know, you know, just, we're going to get you, you know, uh, when you're at Hammersmith and all this kind the, of there stuff. There was that death threat at Hammersmith, and it's like uh, with Limbell and Neville. Well, what, and what was the threat from the British movement? They threatened to kill us or something. Um, they didn't, but um, <laughs> I think they saw uh, that I was wearing a Star of David, and I thought. They thought, mm, two blacks and a Jew, this is perfect. So we got death threats, and um, but nothing happened. I think most of the, the, the trouble at, at specials concerts were caused by sort of football partisan um, feelings and, and far too much alcohol, really. But, they, but the, the, the concerts were, were, in, were in the main absolutely, utterly joyous. They were fantastic. Everybody danced from the moment we hit the stage to the moment we left. It was great. Were there any particular nights that stick in your head for the, for those reasons? Jeez. I seem to remember the Hammersmith Palais as some of the, the, the best shows we did. And up north, we, I seem to remember Doncaster Rotters. I don't know why, but it, it, it's just, there's just something about the, the shows that we did up north at, at the time were, were just terrific. When you'd had like a good few kind of hit singles under your belt, did you kind of go through any kind of surreal or weird experiences back at home in Coventry? You know, was the kind of every day, every day it was. Um, and uh, uh, Coventry's got like a brand of humour that it's hard to penetrate, really, and um, um, that's the only thing I think I've taken out of Coventry that um, humour, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, then there was a lot of resentment. I found a lot of resentment in Coventry. Like, I got bottles thrown at me and threatened to beat up and stuff. But that was, it was just that mentality. But it was weird then going home and, you know, doing my washing and then, like I said, going to New York. It, did, it made very little sense. Um, and because we'd never stopped, we didn't really, like, have a day off. We never had time to think about it. It was, um, you're home for half an hour and then you're off again. It was... Um, 
yeah, it's was, it was hard to keep any sort of control. Terry, Horace, uh, tell me about the worst of times. The worst period for me was 1981, around the hit single, <laughs> Ghost Town. Um, because mm. um, I think I was trying to make sense of it all. And then um, from day one, really, trying to work out what, what we were and what I was. And then we... Um, we released Ghost Town in amongst the really sort of a, a troubled time, and um, and we were a really troubled band by that point. Um, so it was I, I find it very very difficult celebrating a number one single, and uh, do you know what I mean? You're on top mm, of the pops, mm, and here's mm, number one. It's the group who do the riot thing, and it's like, yeah, yeah. but um, just it just nothing made sense. And then you collect a, a gold disc to celebrate this anthem for the riots. It just didn't make any sense at all. And and recording Ghost Town, we weren't a group. We were just. Oh, it was of, horrendous. I mean, trying to. Re- I remember trying to rehearse it. We rehearsed it upstairs at the General Wolf, and everybody stood in separate corners of the room. Yeah. You know, the drums were in the middle, and everybody else was as far away from everybody else as possible. Yeah. And Jerry was sort of would be walking out, um, you know, in tears because nobody would play that chord and, and all this kind of stuff. And I just, it was just, it was painful. And it, to get to actually get Ghost Town recorded, I think, was pretty much a triumph of the will, as far as I'm concerned. And I did what I usually do in those situations, which is basically record my bit and go away, you know, and just leave everybody to get on with it. It was it was a dreadful situation, dreadful mm-hmm. atmosphere in the studio. Yeah. Did you actually? I mean, obviously, it was recorded under quite trying circumstances. But did you think it was a good song at the time? Yes, I thought it was great. I it was really good. I thought all the th- the three songs that we did recorded at that on that record were were good. I mean, I guess what I'm interested in is is like how hard is it to disentangle what a song or a piece of music sounds like to you when it's been recorded in really trying circumstances? I, I couldn't. And that's why we split up. A few weeks after it, really, um, we actually split up as it was number one. If I remember, I'm not sure, but I think I split up when it was number <laughs> one. Much about anybody else, but um, yeah, we couldn't. I couldn't come to terms with it. It's uh, it, it. It didn't make any sense to me at all. Man, politically, I, I thought we'd reached a point where there was no return, and um, I, I, I was trying to work out exactly what we were trying to say really and I couldn't make sense of it. It just it seemed for me it was really, really tragic that something which had such amazing potential, which brought such you know, such joy, you know, and could destroy dance halls and you know, and leave sort of audiences in this huge sweaty mask would be reduced to something that was just a chore and something that everybody hated. Uh, I just thought it was awful that, that it would go from this sort of like great positive to this appalling negative. Uh, it was it was really really very very depressing. But but looking back now, I, I I I'm happy that we documented a certain period. At the time, I didn't realise that's what we were doing, but that's actually what we did, and that song's lived on with every clip of Margaret Thatcher on every TV program ever, and so. But that's great. That's the job done, really. That's mm. that was our part in 1981. We were the band who supplied that for, you know, a backdrop for the riots. And but it's not a, such a, not a great achievement. It's not like going to Euro Disney, is it? Do you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> I don't know. It's 
as one you tell your grandkids? Um, there's a certain kind of symmetry to it, maybe. Do you think the reason why it kind of fell apart so quickly had anything to do with the fact that you'd be coming quick, famous so quickly? Oh, I'm sure, yes. Well, and I think it was the fact that it was the real punishing schedule that, like, we have alluded to. Like, you'd come home for half an hour and then you'd go, you'd have to go, you know. Um, I think that's why it, the, the best of times were, was in 1979, you know, before, you know, the, 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 the big schedule started and we had, and we were just sort of small cogs in a, in a big marketing machine and, and we didn't have time to catch our breath. Um, do you think Ghost Town was like sonically where the kind of specials were heading into the 80s in a, in a more left field direction? Some of us were, yes. Yeah, without a doubt. But but then again, not all of us yeah, were. Yeah. Um, it, it's like um, it's it's quite funny making this record now because people said it didn't sound like the first album, but more specials didn't sound like the first album. And that, there was a mm. tiny gap in between that, and I remember people's reaction to more specials. It's like that's not Scar. Like, What's that? International Jet Set. What is that? And it's um, that's where we were heading. Some of us were heading that way berets and Hawaii shirts and some of us were not really have things kind of soured beyond mending point with Jerry Dammers god I hope so <laughs> we've done our best <laughs> <laughs> no I've, I've never understood the thing with Jerry it's like yeah. people tell me about it all the time why don't you get on I've no idea it's like I've no idea why I don't get on with my mates from school well we do get on sort of but I haven't seen them and that's all it is, and um, that's all it'll ever be, really. And, you know, everybody's got an opinion, but we sort of know us and Jerry, and it's, um, I don't feel anything bad for him at all, not a bit. Can I ask specifically about the Top of the Pops performance? I mean, was what was it about that Top of the Pops performance that was seemed to be a catalyst for you breaking up? I think it was just that we were all in the same room at the same time. Oh, right. Hatred, if you like, really. <laughs> it was, yeah, <laughs> you know, it was just a pure logistics thing. But no, we, we just didn't want to spend any time with each other, and that, I think that showed when we started, when we were touring at that period, and, and people would start bringing their own mates. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Jerry had about thirty mates come with him because they'd listen to him or something. But um, it, yeah, we, we we just didn't get on. Right, talking about today. How have these kind of good and bad experiences fed into who you are as musicians today? I think we have split. We now split things equally. I think that's a um, that was a very important in every decision. single way. And that, yeah. that was for me that was the most important decision. Um, that look, there are because the specials were a seven-piece partnership. But it didn't work out that way, and so when we reformed, it became a six-piece partnership or whatever it is. Now it's a three-piece, but it's very, very important, I think, politically to be equal, really, or else what are we trying to do? It's like um, all people, you know, all men are equal, but some more than others, and we, we, but I think our age and experience has allowed us to do that and handle it really easily, and um, no big deal. I just wanted to say, I really like Encore. I think it's a really good record. But there is something I wonder about with when bands have been away for quite a while and they come back and do a new record. I always wonder why they do it. Because um, there's so much that can go wrong 
uh, compared to what can go right. The majority of bands who record albums after a lengthy break, they don't do a good job of it. And, you know, were you kind of aware that this was a bit of a risk to take? Because after all, if you just announced the tour, people would have come to it, regardless of a new record or not. Yeah, but I think I think maybe I think we're all at a point where we wanted to record, whether it be as the specials or our own solo stuff, and we still happen to be a part of this band, so that's that's why we did it, and because um, it, it's been like ten years or something since I made a record, and I was probably ready to make a record, um, and but we're still together, so that's that's why we did it. But I, th- I think you got to put that fear on onto one side because. Honestly, who gives a shit? Really, it's like I don't care what anybody thinks. It's like who cares? And that's I've seen it disable so many bands and musicians the fear of rejection. But you, some people are going to reject it. It's life, you know. It's like uh, and going back to Jerry. That's one of my what makes me sad really about Jerry because Jerry's like very really great and it, he hasn't made any record for like thirty years or attempted it really. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's like. And he's capable of writing great songs, but I think it's fear of rejection, and um, I think he needs help with that, really. Because, um, you know, some people should make records, and some people shouldn't. He's somebody who should. So the album opens with, like, a really kind of funked-up cover of uh, Black Skin, Blue-Eyed Boys by The Equals. And I was wondering, do you see any kind of equivalence between the specials and The Equals? I think that they were the first. The Equals were the first multiracial pop group, if you like, and um, it's a it's a good old anti-war song and a Northern Soul classic. It ticks a lot of back boxes in terms of in terms of the special. It references it references us. There's a few tracks that've got a really deep kind of like late period kind of funk sound, and by by that I mean like a '70s funk sound rather than a late '60s funk mm. sound. Is this kind of reflecting where certain band members' heads are at today? Or? Yeah, I think when it came to funk, I, I, I mean I was listening to Talking Heads funk. Really, we mm. discussed that a lot, and uh, when Talking Heads went funky live, because they had a great group at that point, and um, but didn't lose anything from being talking heads, which which uh, which we explored too, I think. And also, sort of Linval was is pretty much the, the the real deal in terms of that music he was playing, you know, sort of soul music as well as reggae, sort of back in the back in the seventies, mm. and myself as well, yeah. So it was it was a kind of a it was a, a natural style for us, in, you know, as, as well as as reggae. I'm really curious about the decision to do the Lunatics. Mm. Um, like, whose idea was that? It was something Limbo wanted to do, and um, I, over the years I, I've always been curious because the, the way we recorded that first Funboy 3 LP was with minimal instruments and players, and basically we, we got a percussion box in and there was a piano in the studio that we'd hit bass notes or something. And so, but that's how we wanted to do it. But since then, there have been a couple of songs from the album that I thought just be great to see what it sounded like with a band playing it, or um, yeah, and it, and that's it really. And also, it tied in a bit with the period it was written with Thatcher and Reagan felt a bit like May and Trump. It it just it it rang the same bells for us really. Yeah, of course. It's got a really amazing. Um, bit of piano on it like is that your 
boy Nikolai. That's Nikolai, yes. It yeah. really reminds me of, is it Mike Garson who plays the piano on Aladdin Sane for David Bowie? That kind of weird... That was, a, that was something that was mentioned while we were recording yeah, right. it, I think, must yeah, admit. It's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, one of several really kind of powerful songs on the album is The Ten Commandments. So for those who don't know, can you tell me um, a little bit about Sophia Khan? And can you tell me also how you got in touch with her and persuaded her to collaborate with you? I think we were on tour and uh, we were sent a, a photo of Sophia um, wearing a specials T-shirt. And um, she was uh, fronting um, a, a member of the EDL on, on their march through Birmingham. And the really beautiful thing was this bloke was screaming at her and she just gave this really great smile which you know felt like it was reducing his arguments to nothing it it, it, it was really powerful I think and it's just a, a great photo and traditionally you know, you know but with me definitely it's always like if you're going to make a record and there are things you find interesting maybe they should have access to your studio time too and um, to see what they've got to say and when we when we thought about making the record Sophia her name came up again it's like she was 19 and she had obviously had something to say and um, so let's listen to what she's got to say it's really basic I, I think like there's something quite um, like robust about a band who are associated with reggae and rock steady kind of having a dig at Prince Buster isn't there I mean, I, I like from say if you were in a like a more of a say if you were from a rock background, it would be like a like a band having a go at the Beatles or the Stones or something. But do you feel it needed to be said? But isn't that what you're meant to do in a band? It's like well, but how many do it though? Not very few, but it's great fun when you do it. That's part of the job, really, to sort of slag things off. It's. Uh, yeah, but we'd always we were always the great covers band anyway, and that thing about recontextualizing a song, you know, like Monkey Man was a, was um, was was became about nightclub bouncers, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, Message to you, Rudy had its you know its its own sort of it, its its own meaning in in 1979, and I think this it's with that um, with the original Ten Commandments of Man, you know, which I don't think has travelled particularly well over no. the years, um, you know, and then sort of and then and then reimagining it. It's like you know, here's something, and let's change it. Let's make it into something else, which is what what, yeah. what we'd always done yeah. anyway. You know, using you know Jamaican rhythms, you know, reggae, ska, or whatever, and play it. But we mixed it up with punk. We made it different. You know, yeah. So we, again, we, with the Prince Buster song, Al Capone to Gangsters. That's all we did with that. Really, same thing. Like, I'm diagnosed bipolar, and I'm really curious to always ask people um, who are kind of working creative fields, whether they're artists mm. or musicians, how depression can be used as an inspiration for anything. Now, I find it a very kind of blank and crushing sort of, it's like wandering around with a bubble around you. For me, kind of depression feels almost like the antithesis of creativity. And I was wondering, Terry, have you kind of recognised this kind of dichotomy that I'm talking about? Very much, yeah. And uh, I think bipolar became fashionable a couple of years back, and I saw a documentary with Hollywood stars talking about being bipolar and how um, it helps creativity. But it all depends how depressed and bipolar you are. Um, um, because, you know, at, at points where I was 
running headfirst into a wall without a crash helmet, I didn't feel that creative. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, I just felt destructive. And um, it's, it's difficult because I've been sort of medicated for 10 years now and I'm not sure how it affects what I do, but um, I know that I can get up in the morning and do stuff and that I'll go for that every time rather than being this, you know, dark flower in the corner who creates songs about 18th century Australian miners. I'm not sure who I'm on about there, but um, do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's it uh, the, the, the fact that you can just get up and function, and by that I mean washing and eating and brushing your teeth. I used to go for three weeks without washing and, um, ooh, it stung. <laughs> and, um, but, Without knowing that, I didn't know I wasn't washing. Um, but medication has really helped that uh, a lot. Um, I mean, like personally, like I, I have to exercise every day. I have to watch my diet. I can't have sugary food. I have to watch my caffeine intake. You know, I have to talk to someone about it. I have to do talking therapy or whatever. How do you, what's your routine like? Is there a lot of things that you have to do just to kind of... Well, I have loads of chocolate and sugar, but then cancel it out with lithium. It's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I need to try Best that one. Both worlds, <laughs> um, but they're, they're routine. I know, I, you know, I, I just try to swim and stuff, or, and walk when I can because it actually does help. And um, and I, again, I don't know how it helps. And I've talked to my doctor a lot about this, the effects of this, the effects of this, and what lithium, whatever it is. And now I don't think about it. I just know that I can function. And that's all I need to know. Do you know what I mean? It's like I've got kids. You need to function. You know, you need to you need to be able to look after your kids and stuff. And that's the, the only important thing. With this awareness of the kind of you know disease or the condition of depression and like these kind of tools at hand and being on medication, did you approach doing the album any differently, or did it feel different when you were doing it? It felt great. It felt really brilliant it, because um, I think I've given up on these weird expectations. And I, 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 people around me realised when I was on medication, when I started it, that my behaviour was different. And um, like I'd see the beauty of grass and trees. And um, I don't know how true this is, but evidently I used to moonwalk every morning or attempt to <laughs> in my bedroom. And but that, uh, quite a radical change and but it's it, it's i think it, it, the diagnosis coming at the same uh, coming at 50 years old i mean 50 60s you know it's a key point i think um and but both happening together altered altered what's going on up here and it's like um and knowing what's important to me and what isn't important and once i think once you've cracked that it's great now the word encore to me, it almost suggests like you're tying something up, you're kind of drawing a line under it, but it's so good. Really, isn't this the start of a new chapter instead? Encore is French for again. I wanted to call the album again, but so it's called Encore. So it kind of is called again. Yeah, you, yeah it yeah. was again versus Encore. Yeah. I'm sort of more European than Horace. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, no, but it was, it's like, it, encore doesn't mean end, it means uh, Again. return. It's like an audience want you to return. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I'm thinking of somehow like encore means 
the end. The, no. like, I'm thinking of the like a band playing an encore, but yeah, of course, encore again. But then Sorry. you do another gig the next night. So, yeah. like, I'm happy to make an idiot of myself in front of however many listeners. So does, does it mean yeah. you're going to do it again then? So, we, <laughs> again and again yeah. and again. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I don't know. We we never ever planned. We've never planned a thing. Uh, obviously, when we started making the record, we planned to finish it, but we, we don't go beyond that. And um, because that thing about being realistic and um, not knowing what's around the corner and making plans is a pretty daft thing to do, I think. You should never make plans. I always felt like um, the special should have been a blueprint for like a wave of bands that came after you. And I don't know to what extent that this happened. Although I do think you can look at a very specific strain of British music and see kind of the specials, fingerprints all over it. And it's not just whether you've got a band where there are kind of black and white members. It's not just where you get a slightly kind of off-kilter, weird-sounding, kind of like scruffy take on music, but also maybe a band who are clearly influenced by the very cutting edge of dance music in that day. And I guess I'm talking about bands like Massive Attack and Young Fathers. And they would hold you up as an influence do you see anything of yourselves in those bands no no <laughs> but i think you know I've, I've sort of met a lot of bands in the last 20 years who use us as, as influence i'm in blur especially and I, but i think that's more about image as as much as music really mm. it's like uh, that tradition of the english image and i think Britpop was a massive thing and a lot of bands from that period referenced us or how we looked. Fred Perry started being worn again. Um, yeah, musically, I'm not sure. Um, Tricky says musically, it's like, we're important. Then they listen to his records and it's like, wow, how important. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> but I think what we did, I think now the idea of having, you know, um, multiracial bands is, is, not, is nowhere near a big, so, so much of a big deal as it was made out to be yeah, back yeah. then. But there again, the whole country uh, has, has changed, you know. Um, with, with you know, Asian kids go to school with, with white kids, go to school with, you know, African kids, you know, anyway. So that that's yeah. kind of going to happen or, or organically. So I think... So this, the same is true with the people who you want to be in your group, you know. I don't know, I just feel like maybe there should be more groups in that case. Yeah. You know, maybe, I, but... when, when I do interviews, uh, occasionally, you know, uh, they say, well, have you heard of a, you know, a new band that, that's the new specials? And I haven't. And I'm always asking, where are the new specials? Where, where is the, you know, the, the group of musicians who are going to, you know, do what we did and sort of, you know, take the thing on? I'm, I'm waiting to pass a baton on. The last everybody. time I heard that was The Streets. Okay. Only because another manager, but it was like uh, he, he, he referenced the specials as a massive influence, and I, I get that a bit because of where he was from and how he grew up and what he was saying. But it doesn't go any further than that. I think. Do you know? What I mean, there's a there's a, a slight thing there. It's like if when, when I was getting dressed in 1981, I had a, a Bowie reference, but maybe it's just the cut of me trousers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Rather than you know me doing. Hand mimes. I've got to do that, man. I've got to do that. <laughs> um, I think that's a great question to leave it on. Where are the new specials? Uh, Terry and Horace, thank you very much. Thank you. thank you. You have been listening to 
The Best of Times podcast with me, John Doran, brought to you by Lush and the Quietus. This podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne and co-produced by Matthew Shaw. The theme music is by Oh The Guilt. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, give us a star rating, tweet about us and tell your friends and family. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more Best of Times.